But who would know the code that operates then? It's obvious, isn't it? The people who built the Liberator. Let's take him back what's theirs. Redemption. Hello and welcome to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And this is episode 15, Redemption. We are starting series B. This is written by Terry Nation, the last one he does for a little while, mm-hmm. but the 14th in a row. Directed by Via Lorimore, who is back once again. This was first aired on the 9th of January 1979, and the ratings on this occasion were 7.9 million, which is slightly down. And in fact, on average, this is the lowest rated season of Blake 7. Yeah, I think there's only one that breaks 8 million this time around. That's right. Now, we've actually also had a change of night. Series 1 of Blake 7 went out in the UK on a Monday. Now, these all screened on Tuesday. Yes, so slight change there. I don't know whether it was up against maybe a slightly more popular series, perhaps. Yeah, possibly, possibly, because it's certainly still got the support, but mm. yeah, slightly lower ratings, which is a shame because I think this is a very good season we're about to dive into. Mm-hmm. Not my personal favourite, really, but a very good one. Going in, I'd actually say Series 2 probably is my favourite because I think there are some quite landmark episodes in here. So, Well, in 13 episodes' time, see where we both stand. <laughs> so we left last season on Cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. We're diving into Season 2 here. This is really Part 3 of a three-part story, and indeed... On the compilation tapes that we keep mentioning, this was in fact just part of the ORAC story. So Deliverance, ORAC and Redemption were all in there. Which, as a narrative, it all works very well and very seamlessly. Unfortunately, or fortunately, the production values in this episode are phenomenally changed from the last one. Yeah, it is quite a jump. It is, and we'll explore all that as we go through this episode. But it is the big season opener. Now, this is my episode, Mm -hmm. and indeed, when we were dividing up the episodes for this season... I didn't even have to ask you for this one. You just, okay, Dave, I know you want redemption. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going to break protocol, and I'm actually going to give my opinion on this one first, even though it is my episode. Mm -hmm. And simply to say that I don't know if this is definitively my top five Black 7 episodes, but if it isn't, it is damn close. Wow, okay. Uh, I'm a big, big fan of this episode, and have been since I saw for the first time that compilation tape and then the full episode. This is just that space adventure sci-fi that when I saw this as a boy absolutely captured my imagination. I can remember the first time I saw those system ships that are sort of mini versions of the Liberator and grasping the idea, oh my god, this is Liberator technology and being excited by that. The whole thing about it being taken over, the visuals of space world, that really, really grabbed me as a boy Mm -hmm. and that's lasted with me. I still find it an exciting space adventure. But as I've grown up, I've then appreciated on top of it all the stuff, particularly between Avon and Blake and all the stuff that's going on in the background. So this is actually a personal favourite of mine, and I'm looking forward to waxing lyrical about this for the next hour. (laughs) So, Richard, how about you? I was going to say, maybe I should just leave you alone with this one for a bit. Uh, Look, I'm going to say it's not a personal favourite of mine. I enjoyed it more, actually, than I remembered. My memories of this weren't that great. It is entertaining. There is stuff happening a lot of the time. It is actually pretty snappy, particularly the first half before they get to Space World. Overall, though, look, I, I just... It just feels like a bit of a wasted opportunity. One of the questions hanging over at Series 1 was where did the Liberator come from, who built the ship, etc. And 
you sort of immediately think this is going to be the episode where we see exactly where it comes from. It's going to be a big adventure. And it kind of isn't. The first half of the episode is setting up the ships, turning on them. There's all these mysterious attacks and whatever. And again, you think it's really building to something big. And I don't know, the Space World stuff just felt really rushed. It just sort of feels like it's a big build-up for minimal payoff. I get what you're saying, but for me it actually does work, and I find it a really exciting adventure. So I get that if you didn't, this would be a disappointment. Well, having disagreed on our overall views, we'll get into it. Now, this is a relatively linear sort of story. Mm -hmm. There is really just one big A plot, although it is a story of two halves. Yep. So we're going to go through it in a fairly linear fashion, although there are a few things we'll group together and do in one hit. So the first thing to just mention is to really talk about how we are now in Season 2. Now, some time has clearly passed on the Liberator since the events of Orac. Yes. It's ambiguous whether it's sort of days or weeks, but it is a certain amount of time. Well, I think so. Look, they've had time to go and get all new costumes, and Callie's had her hair cut. <laughs> yes, so they've gone to the uh, the June Hudson Space Emporium. Yeah, we probably should actually spend a second on that. We have a new costume designer for Series 2, and it is June Hudson. Whatever you can say about her costumes, there is a very noticeable change in the feel and look of the episodes from this point on. Yeah, so we should say that June Hudson is very well known to Doctor Who fans. Yes, indeed. Uh, famously, when John Nathan Turner came on as producer a couple of years after this was made, mm-hmm. she was the person he hired to sort of give Doctor Who a whole new look in the costume department. Yep. And yeah, look, she is a very controversial designer in Doctor Who fandom, and I think mm. Blake Seven fandom as well. But whatever else you say about her, she comes up with big concepts and does big ideas so when they work it's a really exciting idea when they fall down they fall down and you can't help but notice yeah and that probably is the point i had i think she has some fantastic costume designs but you also get some really quite laughable decisions as well i really like blake's jacket in this in the first half of the season for example i just think it's sort of slightly different and innovative you're giving me funny looks oh with these big flowing arms the, the bat wings yeah yeah well she does and look, we'll do it early. We'll give our uh, <laughs> weekly shout out to the Making Blake 7 Twitter feed. That does have a breakdown on the start of Series 2 and what June Hudson went through. Because she did sit down and look at each of the characters and how she interpreted them. Blake, I think, she sort of thought was fairly heavy set. So she wanted to give him sort of flowing clothes. She saw Avon as a very sort of guarded, close personality. So she gave him sort of something tight-fitting and closed. Very dominant. Yes, Villa she saw as being really lopsided, so she gives him very asymmetrical costumes, etc. Yeah, as I say, there's some really big stuff there. And this is all by way of saying, when we look back at those last four episodes of season one, we commented, I think, every time, that it was very clear there was no time, there was no money. No. They were just getting through. And it's really obvious that with Redemption, there's been a big reset. They've clearly got a lot more time. Yes. They've clearly got more money. And, and even though it's not, I think, a bigger operational budget because the liberator model is made the flight deck is made the teleport bay is made yep all of those things the guns you know just all these things that add up in season one are all done so you don't need to do them again yes although i will make the point they do actually and they do take a point to show us that they now have a full tray of teleport bracelets (laughs) absolutely and they do do a bit of um, revitalizing work on the flight deck as well yes there was some work done we sort of mentioned in the special that series one was done with strike filming where they pull the Liberator set down each week and set it back up again, which meant it was taking a lot of wear and tear. And you can see by the end of the season where it's been damaged. The whole set gets a complete redress. And because they're now using block filming, so each director's working on two episodes, they can do all the flight deck scenes for those two episodes in one go. And that reduces the wear and tear and everything on the sets. 
So I guess we should probably move into the episode. Look, we've said that clearly at least some time has passed since the end of ORAC. Yeah, so the big opening conversation between Avon and Blake really is crucial, not just to the episode, but to setting up the dynamic between these two leads for the season. And I think uh, something I saw in your notes when we were planning this episode, Richard, you made the point very much that it is now, there is Blake and Avon, and then the others. Yes, And I think we made the note in one of the later Season 1 episodes, I think we are now very much at a point where it is how the rest of the crew fit in around these characters, and I think almost in particular how they fit in around Avon. Yeah, so in this conversation where Avon actually explains to Blake what Oryx's prediction is about and how they can foil it, Avon has worked it all out and clearly done so some time ago, Mm. but he doesn't go to Blake and say, hey, I've worked it out. He waits for Blake to be a dribbling mess on the floor going, I just don't know what what this is. And he waits for Blake to ask him for the solution, and he then gives it to him, which puts him in a position of power. Orak's prediction still hasn't come into effect. I am trying to find some reason why he was wrong. Have you found what you want? No. That's because you're looking for the wrong things. What exactly does that mean? It's a common enough failing. Now, if you've finished with Zen, I'd quite like to get on. We have a malfunction on the intermediate range sensors. I need to check the systems. Leave it! If I've missed something, I want to know what it is now, Avon. Well, now, all you had to do was ask. He's more confident than he was last season, and you really got the feeling that in this season, the big threat is actually that Avon is going to displace Blake as the star of the show. Avon is just going to demonstrate that he can control the situation and look after the crew and whatever better than Blake can. You know, he makes the point here that maybe they'll realise that you can't provide all the answers. Uh, how long have you known? Oh, several hours. And you just let the others go and worry? Well, all they had to do was ask. Perhaps in future, they won't rely on you to provide all the answers. Exactly. There's still a very much a mutual respect between them. Mm. And we see that both in this scene and in other scenes. And that, again, sets up a dynamic that really pays off at the end of the season as well. There is still that thing with Avon that a showdown won't work. Clearly, the rest of the crew probably will fall in line behind Blake. Villa even says he'll have a bob each way. Yeah. Not only does he want to prove he's better than Blake, he is really getting a smug satisfaction out of the fact that Blake is frustrated by this and Blake hasn't worked it out. Yes, and he needs it to be demonstrated that Blake failed. Yes. And he's solving the problem. So he talks about the prediction itself, and we'll talk about Auric in a moment, but he works out the star's background. As a boy, that was just so clever. Mm. It's in the 12th sector, Astro Point 781, where Blake says that's halfway across the galaxy. That can't be literal, given how quickly they get to Space World, but it is clearly some distance away. And it's obviously some considerable way out of anywhere the Federation or really other humans are operating. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about ORAC and ORAC's entire involvement across this episode as sort of a bit of a block here, because... What's important here is having inherited Orac last season, they have to actually define his powers. In Orac, the episode, he was very much seen as quite powerful, mm. almost too powerful. And here they still make him an incredibly sophisticated and influential computer, mm. but they put limits on his power. For example, it's made very clear that he's not actually capable of seeing the future. No, he's not clairvoyant. No. no. All he actually does is, like any computer... He can take the various bits of data and work out what the probable outcome is based on the input. Yes. There was, I think, initially something about whether ORAC was going to be an ongoing part of the series or not. And I think once they decided they were going to retain him, it then became, well, really, how do we limit his power? 
he's difficult to deal with. The crew really are an annoyance to him in a lot of ways. Yeah. And that's how they limit his power. Yes. And the other thing about making it very clear that he's making predictions, not seeing mm. the future, is you avoid any predestination paradoxes. Yes, which, indeed. Which are just never fun for a plot. He's played here, of course, by Peter Tunningham, Derek Farr having chosen not to continue as a regular. Which, no, that's which is right. fair enough. And Peter Tunningham tries to work out, well, how do I make him that sort of character that can actually be ongoing and actually have a bit of a character? And he modelled it on that fussy civil servant. Yes, fussy little bureaucrat. Yeah. Yes. And interestingly as well, and an important point to what you were saying, Richard, about him having limitations, it takes Orak time he'd actually clear his circuit. So it isn't just, Orak, do this, okay. It's, well, I can do that when I clear my circuits and I'm ready to do it. Yes, that probably leads into the discussion around how much of a role Orak really is playing in exactly what's going on here. And I think most commentators really suggest it's a hell of a lot, actually. Yeah. He really is running the whole thing. I know that the Liberation book, Alan Stephen and Fiona Moore's book, posit that he actually contacted the system and told them where the Liberator was in order to run the whole scenario. I did wonder perhaps whether it's more the system are already attempting to contact the Liberator and he just happens to pick up on that when he controls Zen the first time because his prediction is incredibly precise and it's down to the exact location where this is going to happen and the pattern in the stars. Yeah, I certainly have never taken that as Orac contrived the situation to start with. I've always assumed that Orac, as you said, he reads Zen, he gets involved in the system from then on, mm. and he says, okay, well, they're coming to get us, so therefore this will happen, therefore that'll happen, and therefore this will be the outcome. Yes. And, and everything does flow from there. And I don't think he actually gets actively involved until he's asked to. No. But I agree, you can read it both ways. Yeah, his influence is felt all through the episode, and I actually think it's very cleverly built up, because you get these little signs of things not going right in the system, and if you're paying attention, you can sit there and go oh, okay, Orac's doing something now, or this might be Orac's influence. Blake even mentioned it at one point to build it up to the audience, but it's not so in your face that when it happens at the end, you're like, well, I saw that coming. It's like, okay, it was properly laid down, it was properly marked, but it's not in your face. And that does allow the episode to build in such a way that, okay, we know that the crew aren't going to be killed in the first episode Mm. of the season, but there is enough drama and enough tension that something might be happening, and you can't see how the ending's going to happen, But it's all been laid down in in front of you. Yeah, a lot of these events are already in train because when Avon does come onto the flight deck, he says there is a fault on the intermediate range sensors. Can I get on and look at them? Oh, absolutely. I am absolutely in no doubt that the system has already started influencing Mm. the Liberator even before the the titles are on this episode. Or if you take the idea that Orak is driving anything, has he disabled the scanners to stop Zed and the crew from detecting the incoming ships? It's an interesting theory. Hmm. I think it works better if that's the first part of the system's attack. But (laughs) if you want to go the arch manipulator theory through Iraq, it does make sense. Yeah. The final point I have to make on this segment, though, is how many people die because of Iraq? Because not only does he take out the other deep space vehicle, Mm. he basically shuts down the system that is feeding, clothing, housing, and generally keeping order on three planets. Yep. Now, I'm not saying that they're not long-term better off without the system, but you would have to wonder what the transactional cost yes. of that actually is. <laughs> yes, indeed. Indeed. So we launch from there into the first big action scene of the episode, and that is really pacely done, and it comes from nowhere. 
as you've said, their sensors have been knocked out. So I assume the system has done that. But then, yeah, you get that flash, you get that bang, and it's all just on. You notice Paul Darrow clearly is having a ball doing this when he does over, We are under attack. <laughs> Battle stations! <laughs> Attention! We are under attack. Battle stations! Yeah, that is very true. <laughs> Interestingly here as well, Blake starts giving orders that are very different to the way we've seen him operate in battles previously. He just says, basically, put up the force wall, go up to standard by eight, go in a quick orbit around the planet, yep. and there is actually no strategy to it beyond just try and get away from them, and then we'll work out what's going on. It really is just find up the windows and put the, put the put foot the, down. Put the foot down, yeah. It's a space version of that, yeah. Which is an interesting sort of thing. I don't know if he's panicking or really just doesn't have time to think. They're obviously attacked really quickly, and I mean, they're hit several times in rapid succession. So I think it is just a case, well, at least at high speed, we may have a chance of outrunning them. He's even less cautious than Zen. Zen says, you know, go 2,000 spatials around the planet. Yep. He's no make it 1,000, increases the speed again. There really is that just sense of, we don't know what's going on, but yeah, we're just got to get out of here. There's an interesting shot there, actually, when they first see the alien ships. You notice the camera immediately jumps to Avon, who is obviously meant to have either pretty much worked out what's happening or is in the process of very quickly working out what is happening. While the crew are still, who are they, where are they from, what's going on? Yeah, and as I alluded to in my introductory comments, the design of those two pursuit mm. ships is so cleverly done because it's not just a copy of the Liberator or a duplicate or a mini version no. of the Liberator, which would be really obvious. It is a different design, but it clearly uses the same technology. It's got that spherical drive system. It's got the same weaponry systems. Mm. And it's enough for the audience to just go, ooh, this is Liberator technology, I think. Mm. And again, you're right, Avon is clearly having those same thoughts of, I've seen that sort of drive system before. Yes. And Dudley Simpson does some great music in these scenes as well. Really good stuff here. Yeah, I have to say, I know I was a bit down on the episode at the start. This is a really tight really exciting little sequence and the model work here is really really good unfortunately the film could have used a bit of a clean-up i think yeah. before they put it on the dvd yes there's that quick chopping though between you know different characters the model work back to characters mm. all of that's done and there's a moment in here which i really love which we'll play now jenna hold course till they're within our range holding course weapon systems primed for firing lock on target target fixed range Fifty thousand spatials and closing fast Travelling at almost standard by 12. Impossible. I tell you, they are. So the reason I really like that is because when Villa says they're going nearly standard by 12 and the crew don't believe him, we as an audience know only the Liberator can do that. Yep. So without any character having to say it, without any sort of exposition, just them going, these ships travel at standard by 12 is enough for the audience to go, wow, this is a big deal. Yep. And again, it heightens that tension even more, but it treats the audience as intelligent. Mm-hmm. By now, the communications are disabling Zen. They think they've got away. And we now move to a bit of a pause in the episode. So, having had the big action scene, we now get that little sort of transition scene again of just, just ramping the tension up a bit more. We get all the interactions with Avon and Blake and the various computer systems, and everyone just sort of starting to work out what's going on. And Avon, as you said, is the first one who just says, it should have been worse. Unfortunately, I found watching this, having Avon work it out is fine, but they then sort of labour the point a few times while the rest of the crew sort of finally catch on to what it is he's trying to tell them. Yes, and I mean, it's clearly shown that he thinks he knows what's going on. When Jenna says we're running blind, we don't know where we're going, oh no, I think we're going somewhere mm. quite particular. Yes. But no, I, I like that. 
So let's have a conversation about that scene in the power room. I like it, but... The death of the Daleks, ten <laughs> yes. Look, yes, it is a Terry Nation trope. And yes, as the cable comes out of the wall, Blake is very clearly touched by the cable. Yes, so he is. That's unfortunate, but that's okay. But again, when Blake is literally up against the wall, mm. it's Avon that he wants. And it's not just, you know, get me someone, someone get down here. It's get me Avon. Yes. Avon's busy. No, get me Avon. Jenna, it's Blake. I'm in sub-control room four. Get Avon down here fast. Avon. I heard. I'm busy. He's working on Zen. I don't care what he's working on. Get him down here. Yeah, he clearly will know how to resolve this. Yes, but Avon still gets in a jab there. Blake, what I'm doing is vitally concerned with our survival. Are you prepared to take responsibility for what happens if I delay? Don't I always? I just get down here. Anything you say. And Avon, don't come crashing here. Gently as you open the door. Blake's regard for our safety is inspiring, don't you think? (laughs) And again, there is that character moment where the rest of the crew acknowledge that, yes, there is a building tension between these two, and that they are probably going to get caught in the middle. Yes. But the instrument and system disruption is enormous. I shall tell our fearless leader... What's the matter with him? What do you think? If it ever comes to a showdown, my money's on Blake. Well, half of it, I'll put the other half on Avon. But again, you see that mutual respect between the two of them. Mm. And there's a lovely little interplay there where Avon doesn't quite put himself on the line for Blake. He's confident he can get away. Yep. But, he, you know, he's risking himself for Blake. He is. So I, I do like that scene. And Blake, indeed, again, reciprocates that concern because he says, you know, look, the thing's moving towards you. Look, that's enough. Leave it. Let's go. Yes. Yeah, so it probably would suit Blake if Avon got fried in some <laughs> ways, but... <laughs> but Avon, of course, does get another little line as well. And it's one of those wonderful Chris Boucher action hero lines. I think my instinct for survival is more finely tuned than it is. The other scene that I want to mention as part of this is... That bit where Avon does effectively start to explain what's going on to the other Mm. crew members, which is where the replacement is rejected. I like it. Again, he gets that dramatic line of... It's rejecting the replacement. It's more fundamental than that. We are the cause. It is rejecting us. My only concern there is when he starts to do that whole analogy about a virus and everything... It's just a little bit too Trek, you know. Oh, like putting too much air into a balloon. You know, it's, <laughs> it's a little bit like that. But it does, again, you know, that moment where that part explodes under Zen. Yep. Again, the tension's ramped up just mm. another level. Where they're having the discussion about the ship rejecting them and that, they have a very nice little sort of occasional table and some plastic <laughs> chairs that they can sit on, which I'm assuming must be the ones from that little booth thing they were yes. in, in Orac, maybe, but... But again, interestingly enough, that mutual respect between Avon and Blake that we keep talking about Mm. is evident here because it is Avon and Blake explaining to the others, apart from Gan, who isn't worthy of explaining it to. He's off away so that something mysterious can happen, and then we get blood on the wall. Yes. Look, from here, things flow quite quickly. They work out what's going on. The whole command code concept of the people who built the ship, can operate the ship, which is something that Star Trek II uses yeah, true. In, in, the, in that first battle between the Enterprise and the Reliant, where they use the command codes. And that all builds up to this idea, and they use the word redemption. This is the people who built the Liberator, they're coming back to take their craft. Mm. And it all happens very quickly from there. And then 29 minutes into a 50-minute episode, 
we do get that moment. I think we just lost our ship. The lead up into that scene where the Alta first come onto the flight deck and, and take over the ship, again when it's just the three, and they are the three original Liberator crew members just there together. That is again quite a tense little scene. The lights have been dimmed because the ship's now run out of power. Mm. And it is that thing that works in a lot of TV shows and a lot of movies of when you have the safe place suddenly become dangerous. Mm. So the teleport bay is now dangerous. The flight deck is now occupied. So they actually have got no safe space. One of the things about Black 7 is that with the exception of those dramatic moments when the teleport doesn't work, there's always that sense of, well, at any moment we can just say, Liberator, bring us up, and we go back to our safe place. Yes. The safe place is now gone. They are now obviously prisoners of the system. Blake is still very much, what have you done with the rest of my crew? And does that reasoning thing look, I accept that we are your prisoners, but I demand to know that the other members of my crew are still alive. Yeah, it is that Blake thing of him assuming that if he plays by the rules and he's decent, everyone else will be decent with him. Which I'm amazed he hasn't clocked doesn't work yet. (laughs) (laughs) But no, it is reinforcing that nobility of the character. Yes. So let's talk now in a big, nice, even chunk about Space World and the system. Earlier on in the episode, we first get our view of Space World. And that is a really cool, big model. Like, money has been spent on that. Yes, it has. It's internally lit. It is a really impressive model. Yeah, it is big. It's got dimensions. Again, you see those hexagons and those spherical things Mm. that just subtly imply that this is Liberator technology. The kind of technology that built Liberator. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And even when we still get those sets, it's a large set. It's, again, hexagonal. It's very well lit. Mm. The costumes are alien costumes. Okay, look, looking back 40 years later, they are 1970s space person costumes. You know, all that lycra and all that shiny stuff. Yes. But again, (laughs) you know, the first time I saw this, that's what, to me, space adventure looked like at the time. It is gleaming and it's weird and it's different. And very quickly you get that sort of thing. And we are introduced to the two Alter, Alter 1 and Alter 2. Yes. The model work continues to be great when we get that shot of all of Space World and the Liberator and the two Pursuit ships all together in the model, all Mm. coming in. And that really gives it a sense of scale. And yes, we then get the uh, airport landing strip (laughs) runway. And um, (laughs) I will pause for 30 seconds and tell the story, Richard, of... When the two of us uh, went to a Doctor Who convention in Sydney and for the first time we actually flew, we came back late on the Sunday night and flew into Melbourne Airport about nine o'clock, yep. all the roadway lights, and I was next to you and I just turned to you and I said, that technology, it's the kind that built the Liberator. <laughs> yeah. and, and the rest of the passengers not quite sure why we were pissing ourselves <laughs> off and get that. Yeah, I do remember that. Oh, happy days, happy days. Great times. So let's just go through a bit of a list of the things that we know and we see about Space World and the system. And cleverly how it all sort of goes back into what we know already. So, for example, we now see the teleport bracelets, which have always been kind of the wrong size and the wrong shape and very fragile. But when you see them being worn by the altars, sort of on their... Up near the elbow. Up up near the elbow. You go, oh, actually, that makes sense. They're designed for these more graceful alien sort of things. Again, the same with the Liberator seats. The Liberator seats never really made sense for humans. Mm. They're sort of things you perch on. But when you look at the way the altar carry themselves, again, it makes perfect sense. They have weapons that are 
physically similar to the Liberator weapons, but they're slightly bigger, slightly cooler, and they shoot fire. They have a pyrotechnic charge in them, yes. Yeah, so you get this idea of, again, the same technology, but more advanced. They have also the Liberator-like weapons, little sort of torture rod things that they carry. Yeah, again, it all feels like one holistic, consistent technology, which is really, Mm. really good. Now, do we assume that these are a set of long-lost Earth colonies? That's interesting, because when we sort of get our one scene of exposition where we meet the slave, yes, the system and space world and everything has been there since before the slave's father's time. So we're sort of talking probably, what, three, four generations. Yeah, I, I thought slightly less, but certainly a couple. There's certainly nothing there to suggest they're not human. But... No, so my headcanon, and there's nothing really to validate this either way, is that from that first sort of Earth expansion, mm. they were a set of Earth colonies, they've probably been quite a way out, they've been sort of lost, and their technology's grown independently, and that's what's led to the creation of the system. Yes, yeah, certainly if they are human, Space World and these three planets clearly are a fair way outside anywhere where the rest of humanity is active. Yes. So you would think, by inference, Sector 12 clearly is, you know, is somewhere way out. Yeah, and you do get the wonderful concept, and I will concede this could have been expanded on and could have been more of the episode but that's okay it is this idea of a computer system that you go okay originally this would have brought order to the planet it would have ensured that the food supply was better managed the climate was better managed they weren't fighting they weren't fighting you know it would have brought peace and harmony but over time it has clearly extended itself and it now controls the population either indirectly or in the case of the altar it directly controls people yes and presumably the people on the planet that really just exist to keep the computer running. It is. So it is that analogy or analogue of the concept of, yes, you can have order and you can have the trains run on time, to use the expression, but at what point do you lose your freedom? Mm. And here that loss of freedom is taken to the extreme where the computers now just use the humans as labour. Yes. So although it isn't expand on, I think, as well as it could be, there is that analogue and that analogy mm. in there that I think does drive the episode. And that pushback and warning about fascism is something you see from Terry Nation in a lot of his work. Let's face it, going right back to the invention of the Daleks in 1963. Yes, which actually for me in some ways was one of the letdowns for the episode. Yes, we have that sort of BBC television thing that one talking part really represents all the slaves, but they see the slaves, they even see the slaves obviously after you know that group tries to break away or whatever and they're rounded up and shot. We see the bodies being piled up. Yeah, just just break in for a moment. That is actually quite a clever little thing. And I didn't notice it the first multiple times I watched it. But you do get that sort of tannoy announcement, there's been a slave revolt in sector mm. wherever. And it's not mentioned again, but yeah, Blake does walk past. Just the guards casually piling up the bodies behind him. Yes, which makes it quite interesting that really at the end of the episode, he doesn't stick around to actually help free the slaves or have they actually successfully escaped from the system. I mean, you could probably make the more obvious point that Roy Evans, the talking slave, dies really when the script is finished with him. Oh, Roy Evans is a literal walking plot device. He is there to get Blake out of the situation, give the exposition, and look, we can't have you coming with us, so you could just stand there and get killed rather easily because it's 48 minutes into the episode, and sorry, you need to die now. Yeah, but... It struck me as interesting that Blake doesn't really have any direct involvement with the slaves. He doesn't, you know, even speak out against the fact that they use slave labour to the altars, any of it. And that probably just led to the whole thing about this aspect of the episode just feels quite perfunctory in places. Yeah, well, Blake does get to be sympathetic to it. And, you know, look, he doesn't really have a chance to do anything about it anyway. Blake does get at least those moments where the guy falls over and he goes and... Yes, he does. Can I share your burden and... 
football yeah. and that sort of thing. <laughs> ah, yes, indeed he does. But yeah, on the slave clearly repays that debt with his life. But <laughs> yeah, a bit unfortunate. <laughs> anyway, and I do like the filming here. So we'll talk about the filming in a moment. But it is filmed in a nuclear power plant. Yes, it is. And again, the director takes the time to really make out that this is a big place. Mm. So it takes time to walk between locations. Yes, it does. And there's lots of shots of the big, vast spaces. Looking up, looking down. Yep. Clearly using those lenses to give you a big, wider perspective. And again, just walking through, and it's like, this is a big place. This isn't just, you know, a pissy space station. This is a city. Yeah, this is a city in space. And indeed, there's a couple of very good fight scenes in here. A couple of very cool stunt falls. Yeah, I think the one off the high gantry is a dummy, but it still actually looks really impressive. It looks really, really good, yeah. Probably before we go on, one call that I did have, where Blake is being interrogated, that's a really nice callback to Series 1, where they ask how he came to be on board the ship, where the ship was found. Yes, and the reference to Cygnus Alpha. Yeah. He says that he was put on the Liberator, yes. which is a slight uh, twisting of the truth. Yes, but it does sort of serve to remind the viewer that, hey, look, they don't just own this spaceship. They did come across it in space and belongs to somebody else. Yeah, there's payoff there for the long-term viewer. Yes. I like all the stuff with the other crew that's going on. You get the conversation between Avon and Jenna where Avon says, look, I'm not going to go easily. No. You know, if we get out of here, we can run, we can hide. Let's not make it easy for them. Villa actually not only gets to get himself out of his cell, get the others out of their cell, but he has a fight off screen and he's clearly been wounded, which just gives the character that little bit more credibility of like, okay, this this guy can fend for himself yeah. when he has to. I did wonder whether that actually was the blood we saw on the wall in Liberator, whether that was his. But Either way, though, it just gives him a little bit more cred. Mm. And in fact, all the characters come out fairly well there. Again, gets to take on three guards. Yes, he does. Which is fun. <laughs> Blake, however, a little bit morally dubious at this point. Yes, well, we have the big moment where Avon and the others have escaped and they think they're making their way back to the ship, obviously, and then they get captured. And suddenly, they're rescued by Blake and the slave. The slave sort of retaliates against the altar officer by using the kill setting. Yep, fully understandable. Yep. Now, the next scene then is Blake applying the device also to the guard, who is actually already lying on the ground incapacitated. Yeah, that's a little bit off that bit, unfortunately. Yeah, clearly, again, this is this ruthless streak in Blake. Yes. But yeah, look, it does end what I think is some really, really good space adventure in Space World. So we're now very much into the final act of Redemption. Yep. It travels very fast from here. They get out. Orak has given them control of Zen, and we'll talk about that in the Liberator database. Mm. The lowest point of this episode by far for me has got to be those two guards. I like that idea of the system has teleport technology, so they teleport some guards across to the Liberator. I like the fact that the crew have worked out that's what they're going to do, so Callie rushes in and teleports them straight back. That's pretty cool. Yeah, don't forget Gans there too when he's ready pose. Yeah, that's right. He's ready for action. <laughs> Unfortunately, there is this horrible moment yeah. of the two guards doing really bad. Oh no, I've got a bomb acting. What shall I do? Oh, I'll throw it. <laughs> and the worst possible throw as well. Like, yeah. It's just so bad. That is a terrible scene. That should have been filmed again. But... It's interesting because it sort of left a little bit ambiguous as to how much of the final damage caused to the system is because 
the guards have just thrown two grenades into their control room versus the damage that Orak's doing. Yeah, or Orak is clearly just screwing their systems up completely. Because your final shot of the altars is Alter 1 just standing there just doing the destruct, destruct, yeah. destruct. So look, the, the system's having a bad day on a couple of fronts, I guess. <laughs> I love the fact that the Liberator sister ship that's sent after them can do standard by 14. Yes. Again, we've sort of set for the long-term viewer that standard by 12 is the Liberator's maximum and that's very mm. fast. So when this ship can do standard by 14, that instantly is just like, wow, that's yeah. a whole step up as well. It's a slight diversion from obviously the appearance of the ship, but you notice at this point, with the exception of Blake, the rest of the crew are very much, no, that's it, we're finished. This is where we're going to die. What's the point of fighting? Yep, so this is it, we're going to die. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a bit strange, again, considering five minutes earlier, Avon was, yeah, let's make it a bit difficult for them at least. I agree in character terms, it's a poor decision. I would argue, though, that in dramatic terms, it's the right decision because you want to amp the temperature right up to the maximum. To the moment where, yes. Yeah. And by having them go, this is it, we're finished. How are we going to get out of this one? It's impossible. And then have the other ship blow up. Yep. You need to do that. And again, Orak is responsible for that. And it all yeah. ties together. I do have one other note here. It seems a little strange that the control for the force wall is actually on those couches down the front and that the crew members actually have to get up from their seat and walk down to the front of the ship. I do note, though, actually, watching this in other episodes, turning on the force wall seems to be Avon's job. Yes, and it is consistently done from that control panel, though. Yes. And we do know Paul Darrow was yes. very meticulous about his control. And that was the note I had. I'm just wondering whether that is one. Once they've worked out that's the control, Paul Darrow's just taken that, right, I'll be doing that from now on. <laughs> that's right, it's that control. I know yes. how it's done. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so look, the conclusion, I mean, if you want to deconstruct it all, I fully concede it's not perfect. But I would argue from a dramatic point of view, it works perfectly well mm. and it wraps everything up very, very neatly. Look, I get that. I just, as I said, I probably found the, the Space World stuff just a bit of a letdown after all the build-up. I guess if you wanted to be a little bit meta, you could perhaps say this episode shows us the situation as the characters experience it. Some weird stuff goes on in the Liberator, they get captured, they manage to escape back to the Liberator and then it's the sister ship that blows up. And really, the detailed stuff around what the system is and how it all works really is more just padding for the viewer. True. So I guess you could take that angle. and Maybe that's my head cannon. Fair enough. <laughs> the last moment of the episode is Blake telling us that we're sending a course for the Earth Sector, which is, I guess, the first hint in what we'll be discovering over the next 13 episodes as part of the season arc. Yes, and you notice Villa is audibly quite dismayed when he realises that's what's going to happen. Yes. Of course, Avon is a little more confrontational. Zen, take over. State course and speed. Speed standard by three, Earth sector. We have unfinished business with the Federation. Oh, no, not again. Why Earth sector? Would you rather stay here? You make them sound like the only alternatives. They are, for us. Go back to your position. And you sort of have that moment, I think, where Avon is just, is this the moment where it's going to spill? No. Yeah, he does pause and go, no, I'm not having the fight now. But we've now set up that dynamic and that quest for the season. Yes. Probably a couple of production notes just before we move into our regular segments. We did say that this was filmed in a nuclear power plant. 
It is the same one that was used in Time Squad. Yes, the crew, we believe, were not very happy about filming there. No, they are a bit wary of being there. They were a bit freaked out, I believe, by the security measures and screening that they had to go through. They had to wash themselves down at the end of the day's filming. There are areas in the power station they're not allowed to go into. Yep, don't eat certain foods while you're in the station. Yeah, which actually I think has a result. None of them eat anything, with the exception of David Jackson. Yes. And again, thanks to the Making Blake 7 yes. site, the anecdote from that is he apparently went back to the catering table at the end of the day and the others all got on the bus back to the hotel and left him there. <laughs> And then suddenly realised when they were in the bar having a drink, he wasn't there. And I think he had to hitchhike back with one of the production teams. Yeah, something like that. Probably on a more serious note, Jan Chappell in particular was quite unhappy that they were made to go there and film. Yes, and actually had it written into a contract that that wouldn't happen again. Yes, that that would never happen again. And one of the areas they're not allowed to go, the big door that leads to the launch bay, that big massive door, that actually leads somewhere quite dangerous. So they were allowed to sort of walk a few paces in do the filming to walk back out again and then the door was shut. Yeah, but it's great that they did it because, I mean, it gives this vast space to it. But even something like, it's a genuine heavy door. It's not yeah. It's not a polystyrene door with people doing heavy acting. No, it is. It is a big, massive, solid door. Yeah, and it looks it. Some of the stuff we talked about with the action, that there were more fights and that sort of thing, a lot of that was apparently added by Via Lorimer. So the stuff with Blake doing his big attack on the guards, you know, his sort of his 007 backward punch at the top of the stairs. Yep. The fight where they kill the altar and the guard. Gan's big fight with the guards running down the stairs. That apparently was put in specifically to give David Jackson something to do. And David Jackson, I think, does say he really liked Via Lorimer because Via would always look out for the cast and make sure they were all doing something during the episode. And this is the good thing about having time to do proper location filming, yep. is that it actually means that the director can get out on the location and go, right... What can I do with this place? Yeah. And he can look at that and go, right, I could do a really good action scene here. I could do a really good fall there. And you feel again that luxury of that location timing is coming through. Although I think Chris Boucher did say the problem with that is, of course, he eventually got to a point where he was just very loosely scripting the stuff on location because it invariably came back vastly different to what was in the script. <laughs> so there you go. All right, well, let's burst into our regular segments. Our first regular segment, for those who are joining us for the first time, is Guest Cast. Yes. So I'll make a start here talking about Alter One, played by Sheila Ruskin, who has the distinction of being in several, almost all of my favourite all-time television shows. Um, <laughs> hasn't been in Brideshead Revisited, unfortunately, as you would have the set, but she was in Doctor Who, The Keeper of Charkin, where mm. she plays Cassia. Yep. Very good in that. Mm-hmm. She's Vipsania and I, Claudius. She turns up in the Rumpole episode, The Right to Silence. But she's got a number of credits going right back to 1969. The Palaces, she had a recurring role in Strangers and Brothers. Even, for example, in the 1990s, she was in A Touch of Frost in a few episodes. Oh, yes. So she is in big mainstream primetime television on the BBC mm. for decades. You know, really, really well-known actress. Our next guest cast is Harriet Philpin, or Alter 2, probably best known I think, to Doctor Who fans as Betan the Thal. Yes, in Genesis of the Daleks, which yes. is... Let's face it, it was written by Terry Nation, it was directed by David Maloney, and is consistently voted by fans a top 10, if not top 5 story. Yes, indeed. So, yeah, very big role in that. But outside of that, she only has a few credits, and they're all in the last part of the 1970s. One thing she was well known for, she was in quite a famous set of UK TV ads for a lemonade brand, where she was the wife of the secret lemonade drinker. And basically, the particular brand of lemonade, this bloke would get up in the middle of the night and sneak down to the fridge for sort of a crafty glass of lemonade, at which point his wife, which was Harriet Philpin, would catch him. And and the twist was, obviously, she was revealed to be a secret lemonade drinker as well. 
these ads ran, I think they were from the sort of early to mid 70s, but they ran for quite a few years in England. She was quite well known for that. I think we're talking about 30, 35 years later. The same company brought out a range of lemonade icy poles, or ice lollies if you're British, and they actually got her and the other actor back <laughs> to recreate the scene. And instead of having a sort of a sly glass of lemonade, they're having a sly icy pole. Right. Yes. And it was a reasonably big deal. It, it actually made the media and everything at the time. So, okay. yeah, I've never seen R. White's Lemonade, but... Um... <laughs> well, there you go. Hopefully our uh, listeners in the UK saw some of that. And our final guest is Roy Evans, who plays the unnamed slave. Yes, the other speaking part. The other speaking part, uh, who has a lot more credits than I actually expected. Now, probably the thing that I most love him for is he plays Abel, a peasant, in three episodes of The Black Adder. Oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> and he gets some very cool lines in that, but he's in lots of extraordinary stuff as diverse as Adam Adamant Lives, an episode of MASH. Yeah, I think he, again, is another one of those professional, minor, bit-part actors. Yeah, he was in the 1977 Treasure Island adaption. He was in Murder Most Horrid with Dawn French, which is a very cool little series. For the oh, movie. yes, yes, I remember Murder Most Horrid. But three Doctor Who credits. Yeah, pull those Doctor Who ones out. Yep. He was Trantus in the Daleks Master Plan. Mm-hmm. So he gets that wonderful line, Why wasn't one of us asked to provide it? <laughs> I love the Daleks Master Plan. That's a very funny line. He plays Bert the Miner in The Green Death. That's probably his biggest Doctor Who role. Yeah, he's really, thought. really good in that. And he also plays Rima the Miner in The Monster of Peladon. That's nice typecast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he's in one of the best John Pertwee stories and The Monster of Peladon. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, look, some, some quite good guest cast in that. Our next regular segment is the Liberator Data Bank. Now, by the necessity of the plot, we actually get quite a bit here. We noted earlier that there is now a full rack of teleport bracelets back. Yes. So that's good to see. Now, I don't know whether this is new information or reconfirmation, but we definitely get it confirmed that it takes two hours of running at full power to drain the Liberator's energy banks. That's right. We get a reference back to Cygnus Alpha, where the guns are again white hot. Oh, yes. Interestingly here, the Liberator can actually be searched fairly quickly. So, although it is big for a spaceship, it's clearly not so cavernous that it takes hours to search. No, it's all on the inside of the TARDIS, no. No, which I sort of found interesting. Now, one thing that's interesting is we now have Aurak having reprogrammed Zen Mm. in terms of who can control the Liberator. So, if we think back to Bounty... Tarvin is able to give Zen commands. And it seems to be implied that unless Jenna literally gave him control of Zen, Zen, provided you get past his little security thing, Zen will basically respond to anyone on the flight deck. Yes. Whereas now it is overtly stated that he will only respond to who he has been programmed to respond to. And presumably sometime after this, they expand that to include Villa and Gan and Kelly, not just Avon, Blake and Jenna. It's set up here. It's quite consistent from here. The Liberator is shown as clearly being able to dock for the first time. And it's obviously done in the the space station designed to dock in. Yes, that's right. It's at home base. Yes. We did mention in the episode on Aurak that Aurak being able to take over Zen clearly implies Zen either has Tariel cells or something reasonably close, which obviously means the system must have something close as well. So Aurak is able to not only influence but totally destabilise their system. Yes, no, that's a very important point, which again gives credence to this idea that maybe they are a long-lost Earth colony and there mm. is at least some Earth technology in the system. Yes. So we'll move on now to, look, it was the 1970s. Only a couple of points here. I think thematically the idea of computers taking over humans mm. is something that we're starting to see a lot more of. 
I mean, we're, we're well past Asimov and the three laws of robotics now. Yep. But we are starting to get that idea of computers being quite powerful. And indeed, we're not far off Skynet and Terminator. No, I was about to actually just to say that the original Terminator movie is only about five years after this. And then, so, yeah, you can sort of see that um, that theme is coming through. In terms of 1970s production, we have the planet Cephalon again. Yes, I did notice that the planet that they try to lose the mini liberators when they're doing that orbit. Yes. Yeah, that does look very much like the planet Cephalon. Oh, I'm sure it is. And look, one unfortunate thing, although I think the guard costumes here actually look very cool and they're a very interesting design and they're made to be different from the Federation Guards, which is important. There are unfortunately a couple of close-ups which on DVD quality with a modern television you can see it's literally just a black stocking with a bit of plastic over the front. Yes. <laughs> unfortunately they don't work in close-up but they still look great yep. generally. I mean speaking of costumes we did talk obviously about June Hudson and her work. Avon's leather costume unfortunately appears to have flared trousers <laughs> which would have been probably quite cool in 1978 or 79 but looks rather dated now. Yes, but it was the 1970s. Yes. One other thing I did have, and it probably doesn't really fit here, but I'll drop it in here anyway. You notice when they go into Space World and they're walking through, they actually play the Federation march. Mm. And it is a rather sad fan moment. The alarm is actually the Federation alarm that they used all through the first season as well. So... It's sort of the watching this 40 years on with a lot of knowledge about the series. <laughs> it did sort of break the illusion a little bit, but... Uh, fair enough. So, Ganwatch. I've noted earlier in the episode that not only does he not get a lot to do, but when they have the what's going on conversation, they don't have it with Gan, and he's busy being picked off first. Yes, that's right. It really isn't a strong episode for Gan. No, it's not. It is a good episode for Avon, though. And we move, therefore, into... What cool lines did Chris Boucher give Avon this week? As we pointed a couple of times during the episode, in terms of the crew, this really is Avon and Blake's episode. And they get a lot of interaction in that here. The, the rest of the cast really suffer from that. But yes, Avon does get some quite cool lines. I'm a big fan of the one that he gets after the attack where he asks if he's all right. All I'm prepared to admit is that I am alive. <laughs> One I pulled out was he's put down a villa where Villa says, get Dean to prescribe something for a headache. I've got this shocking pain right behind the eyes. Have you considered amputation? Yes, there's that put down where he's given about four tasks by Blake. Is that all? What shall I do with my other hand? (laughs) Or even just, that's four words, but that bit where Blake first calls him down to the uh, power room. I heard I'm busy. (laughs) And one we did allude, I think my instinct for survival is more finely tuned than it is. So, finally, we get to our Player of the Week. Now, this has been my episode, Richard, and although I broke convention at the start, I will abide by it this time, so it is your chance to say first, who is your Player of the Week this week? Given this was an episode I didn't enjoy clearly as much as you did, I did find this one a little bit difficult. Mm -hmm. I have given it to Paul Darrow as Avon. I thought you might. And that is really because he is the one probably with the character development this week, and that dynamic with him and Blake. We, We sort of talk perhaps about setting characters up for the impact that they'll have on the series going forward. This really is setting up Avon's arc, so to speak. Yeah, look, he does give a very good performance here and he does really step up in this, yes. this episode, so I, I get that. I've given it this week to Terry Nation and I've done that because having been quite critical of the quality of some of the scripts that he turned out at the end of the last season where he clearly was up against it, was up against the pressure, yep. just churning them out and some of them weren't great or had to be expanded by Chris Boucher. When he's on this occasion, got a bit of time, had a bit of a rest, and just got the time to make the episode he wants. 
I reckon he delivers a really good space adventure. It's got great character stuff, it's thematically quite solid, it's exciting, and I just think that Terry Nation, when given a chance to write a good script, does a really good job, and he mm-hmm. deserves recognition for it. I mean, look, he wrote some classic episodes of Doctor Who, he's done some great stuff in other series, we praise considerably some of his best episodes in season one, Yep. and he's got a couple of good ones still to come. I think this is a really good script, I really enjoy it, and... This is, this is Terry Nation at his best. I'm happy to give him the prize this week. I don't think this is his best script for the series. No, but I think it is a good example of what he can do when the pressure's off, and he's actually given free reign to do what he wants. Okay. Certainly, he should probably have got a player of the week at some point in the first season. So given this is his last script for a while, we probably should do it here. <laughs> <laughs> that too, that too. But look, I've really enjoyed the episode. I've really enjoyed talking about the episode. Yep. Have you come to love it a little bit more... Uh, has, has my enthusiasm rubbed up on you a little bit? Not really. Um, <laughs> no, look, I was certainly entertained by it. I watched it three times for the podcast. There is some really good material in there. I just unfortunately found it was a lot of setup for very little payoff. It really just didn't quite work for me. Fair enough. Well, listeners can make up their own mind. Mm-hmm. But next week, we will be diving into our first non-Terry Nation script Mm. with the episode Shadow. Yes, I'm quite looking forward to this one. I am as well, actually. Got quite a bit to say on this one. But in the meantime, I've been Dave. I'm Richard. Set course for Space City. Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spacefallpc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com slash spacefallpc and on Twitter at spacefallpc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast, and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast, on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake 7. And you know, we're still here. Cut the auxiliaries, get back to primary drive. Are you all right? All I am willing to admit is that I am still alive.